Hello, and welcome to Cradle of Analytics, a podcast about business and Western culture. I am your host, Neil Hepburn. Who am I? Who is Neil Hepburn? Well, I'm an analytics and information management practitioner. So my career mission has been to enable people to answer unexpected questions at executive speed. And to that end, I spend most of my time helping executives, managers, and analysts uncover insights while building reports and dashboards to help uncover more insights or further explore existing insights. This means I also need to know how to build the underlying data management systems required to sustain those reports and dashboards. I also advise executives, consultants, software companies, and investors on matters pertaining to analytics, technology, and information management. In reality, what this comes down to, as any analyst worth their salt knows, is a long and essentially unlimited game of 20 questions. I pride myself on being able to be what I call uh, a data polyglot, meaning that I can see patterns across business domains and thus ramp up quickly on new subject areas so that I can brace the questions my clients come to me with and help them ask even better questions. And it's through these games of 20 questions that I've been able to bring about breakthroughs, not only in the cost savings and other operational efficiencies, but I've also been able to bring about changes in management thinking. And while I'm a big believer and user of technology, I have come to the realization that most of the problems that hold organizations back from being data-driven, so to speak, are not so much technology issues, but rather cultural issues. And the root cause of these cultural issues is what I refer to as Western thinking, which can simply be described as top-down deductive thinking, as opposed to non-Western thinking, which tends to be more inductive and bottom-up oriented, whereby non-Western thinkers or non-Western thinking is more based around looking for patterns and analogies. Oh, and by the way, for the sake of my family, who's kindly put up with this passion project, I should plug my education and consulting services are for sale, and I can be reached by email at uh, either neil, N-E-I-L, at cradleofanalytics.com, or on LinkedIn, if you go to linkedin.com slash in slash costy, and that's spelled C-O-S-T-I-E, you can find me there on LinkedIn. And if I'm able to make a pitch for why you might want to hire myself, I have developed a skill for identifying problems that exist in and between departments and domains. And as I like to say, I live in the IT business chasm, or the space between spaces that everyone else seems to ignore, but where so many modern problems stem from. And on more than one occasion, once I've pinpointed the problem, the solution has turned out to be quite simple. I call it pulling the thorn from the lion's paw. And the biggest motivation for for me making this podcast, in fact, is that I routinely see these trains of logic and analytical thinking on collision courses. And it can be very frustrating after some time to see these collisions, even when they're often spectacular collisions. Okay, the plug is over and I won't talk about myself any longer. Now, to give you a sense of where I'm going here and why this matters, I will point a quote from the late, great H.L. Mencken, who once quipped, quote, for every complex problem, there is a solution that is clear, simple and wrong. Donald Trump's border wall comes to mind when we hear this. And in the spirit of Mencken's quip, I've rewritten the quote to show you how I've come to see the underlying thought process behind Mencken's insight. And so here's my version of Mencken's quote, quote, For every complex problem, there is a train of thought that is logical, efficient, and completely misguided, end quote. So that's my version of Mencken's quote. Now, at this point, you might still be asking yourself, why should I care? 
And the reason you should care is that top-down thinking, which is also known as hedgehog thinking, works really well most of the time. But when complex problems arise, and complex problems are problems where there's a feedback loop involved, such as the economy or anything dealing with sociology or psychology, in these situations, hedgehog thinking can really backfire in a big way. And in the face of complexity, you don't want simplistic top-down hedgehog thinking, but rather what you want is more empirical bottom-up thinking, which I'll refer to as fox-like thinking. Foxes, <laughs> hedgehogs, what am I talking about here? Okay, let's back up a bit. The idea of hedgehog versus fox thinking was first introduced, or perhaps reintroduced, by the American philosopher Isaiah Berlin in his essay, The Hedgehog and the Fox. Berlin got the idea from the essay from a, from a fragment of poetry that was preserved and written down by the Greek poet Archilochus, who wrote, quote, The fox knows many things, the hedgehog one big thing, end quote. Now, taking this idea as a starting point, Berlin crafted an essay where he categorized famous writers in history as either hedgehogs or foxes, and then he stepped back to see if he had any sort of preference of his own. So, for example, he categorized Plato as a hedgehog and Shakespeare as a fox, and in the end, he decided he preferred the writing of foxes over hedgehogs. Now, by the way, Plato was a, is a hedgehog because he had one big theory, or he had a few big theories, like essentialism, for example. And Shakespeare didn't really have one big theory. He just sort of, <laughs> you know, had all sorts of interesting characters and insights on human nature. Now, if we fast forward to the year 2005, the Canadian-American political scientist uh, Philip Tetlock released the book titled Expert Political Judgment, How Good, How Good Is It? How Can We Know? And in this book, Tetlock systematically analyzed hundreds of political predictions while at the same time he did what Isaiah Berlin did and classified each pundit making the prediction as either a hedgehog or, or a fox. And what Tetlock discovered was foxes were overwhelmingly better at making political predictions than hedgehogs. But at the same time, these foxes received little interest from the media, and the hedgehogs, who were often consistently wrong, would re repeatedly be invited back on to talk shows and other guest panels. And the reason for this, as Tetlock argues, is that hedgehogs are more entertaining to watch and can suck up a room's energy. They have these grand theories they're always defending, and whenever they're challenged, they double down on their grand theories and become aggressive in defending them. And so hedgehogs will get invited back onto talk shows and panels, even if they were entirely wrong. Foxes, on the other hand, do not follow grand theories and will express self-doubt and come across as discursive and even confusing, making them difficult to follow and understand. And so the foxes are not very entertaining and do not get invited back onto talk shows, even if they were right. But this bias towards hedgehogs and against foxes has a much longer history than this. There are a number of fables, like Aesop fables, that involve a similar story with one animal that has a grand theory, and the other animal has just a bag of clever tricks. But instead of a hedgehog and a fox, other animals are used, like the cat and the fox, or the crane and the fox, or the squirrel and the fox. And but what all these fables appear to share, or at least in the Western tradition, is a preference for the animal with the grand top-down theory. So it is the cat with its single move that evades capture from the hunter, while the fox scrambles around and is ultimately caught and killed. But interestingly, there are versions of this fable that emerge just outside of the Western tradition where we find some telltale differences. 
Take, for example, the 14th century Persian Manichaean version that involves three fish. A wise fish, a clever fish, and a stupid fish. And in the end, both the wise fish and the clever fish manage to survive, with only the stupid fish getting caught by the fishermen. It is also worth noting that the wise fish is not exactly the same as the hedgehog, since the hedgehog is not so much wise, but rather it has a grand theory that it knows about. The point I'm making here is that this top-down thinking that drives business and Western thinking is ultimately a subconscious philosophy that we cannot see, but which permeates not just so-called the Western world, but now the entire world. Because you see, there is no such thing as Western culture anymore as a standalone culture. Instead, Western culture is something that can weave itself onto any culture. So, in fact, there was never really a Western culture. And the reason for that is that Western culture is, in fact, a metaculture that we cannot easily see or detect. Western thinking, then, has become a subconscious philosophy that we all embrace at some level, but can't really put our finger on it. It's a philosophy that at best turns the world into an elaborate game held together by useful fictions that can be fun to play, especially if we are in the power position. But in the worst case, Western culture can lead us to elaborate falsehoods that are only true in the most facile and trivial way possible, and which can seem like a Kafkaesque nightmare if you're in a position of weakness and impotence. And at this point, you might be wondering if I have some kind of axe to grind or I've simply lost the plot. And it's understandable that you might also be suspicious of where I'm going here. So let me assuage your concerns and tell you that my ultimate goal here is simply to reveal a new way of looking at the world in the hopes of starting a new kind of conversation. And for this reason, the insights and conclusions I will be drawing in this podcast are ultimately of a neutral nature. Now, in order for us to have this new and different conversation about Western thinking, we need to be able to see this invisible water of analytical thinking we're all swimming through every single day. Now, I want to pivot away from the fish I, I just mentioned earlier with respect to the Persian fable, to a completely different fable, or in this case, a joke. I'm referring to the expression, quote, fish don't know they're in water. I'm now referring to an idea that was introduced by the late, by the late American writer David Foster Wallace and originates from a joke that Foster tells like this, which I'll read to you now. Quote, there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, good morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? End quote. And the point David Foster Wallace was trying to make after telling this joke was that we're all caught up in our own minds and egos and routinely forget to consider other people's perspectives. The main example he gives is how someone may have been angered, may have angered you by cutting you off in traffic, and that we immediately will see this person as some kind of a, a villain or a menace to society. But if we pause for a moment, we might consider that this person might be under extraordinary pressure and is perhaps racing for reasons that we don't appreciate, like maybe a family emergency. I take David Foster Wallace's point seriously, and his point is really that of mindfulness. Wallace is simply making a plea for being mindful of our own selfishness, even if it is to be nothing more than that, even if it is just to be mindful. But I'm not here to talk about that kind of water. Instead, I'm here to talk about another kind of water that I think is much more invisible, but no less impactful in how we live our lives and how the world works. And to get to that point, to the point, the water that I'm discussing here, 
is analytical deductive thinking. Analytical deductive thinking, or simply analytics as most people refer to it. Now, uh, as I've already alluded to, analytics or analysis, if you prefer, is simply the act of breaking things down into smaller pieces so that in theory you can understand the whole from the parts. But to be clear, this mode of thinking is not natural. Rather, the natural way of thinking is inductive thinking, which is bottom-up. Namely, our minds have naturally evolved to look for patterns and to reason and infer through analogy. Analytical thinking is the opposite of bottom-up thinking. Nevertheless, some analytical thinking can be very useful and it is always efficient. But too much analytical thinking can lock us into loops of insanity that are difficult to break out of. We can also be easily tricked and deceived through analytics. So it is for all these reasons that I believe that if we can see this analytical water clearly and for what it is, and we can achieve a state of mindfulness about what this analytical water is, then ultimately we will have more autonomy as individuals, which I personally believe is a good thing because societies with lots of personal autonomy tend to be healthier than the opposite. Now, as an analyst, I have pointed analytics back at itself. And in doing so, I have discovered a vein that runs through history, which begins around 8,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, 5900 BCE, um, which is actually uh, Mesopotamia is now modern-day Iraq, Kuwait, and Syria. And it all begins with the Ubaidian culture. Now, I have been mining this vein of history for some time now, and I've looked at it and discussed it from every angle I can possibly conceive of. In other words, I've brought the full weight of my analytical mind to the problem. Simply put, I've been playing a very long game of 20 questions, and I'm now ready to hand in my final report. In summary, here is how analytics and Western thinking works. At the heart of analytics is something known as the syllogism, which was first introduced by Aristotle in his book titled Prior Analytics. The classic syllogism example goes something like this. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. And the secret sauce that lies at the center of the syllogism is what Aristotle referred to as the middle term. So in our example, the middle term is man, because it connects the first premise with the second premise to form our conclusion. If you didn't entirely follow that, don't worry. I'll spend more time later explaining prior analytics and syllogisms. But for now, the syllogism and the middle term are really at the heart of analytical thinking. But in order for any society or culture to really understand this and describe how the rules of logic work, like what Aristotle did, three conditions must be in place. First, you need a medium for conscious reflection. And at a bare minimum, this is the ability to write. But other forms of conscious reflection exist, which I'll describe later. Second, you need an environment that supports democratic debate, or what I call a liberty bubble. Uh, at a bare minimum, you would need some patrons who value and protect free debate, um, so in, in order to protect that liberty bubble. And thirdly, for conscious reflection and democratic de debate to have any kind of an anchor, you need to have a set of shared values. And at a bare minimum, this means the participants need to be speaking the same language. As I'll get into later in this podcast, these conditions can be found throughout the ancient and classical periods in Greece, India, and China. So you can look at these conditions as creating what I'll describe as a supply of analytical thinking. But here's the problem. If there is no 
appetite or demand for analytical thinking, then analytical thinking simply sputters along for as long as patrons or an intellectual class value analytical thinking. And since patrons and intellectuals do not form the bedrock of society and culture, analytical thinking doesn't really take hold across the greater world's cultures. So what then are the demand drivers for analytical thinkings? analytical thinking? In other words, what causes a society or culture to embrace analytical thinking? And the answer is, and this might surprise you, there are three main drivers, each tightly intertwined, but only the last driver is necessary once analytical thinking has woven itself into society. And these three conditions or drivers are, first and foremost, cultural diversity that has a balance of empathy and trust across groups, which is to say a heterogeneous or multicultural population that trusts one another just enough to conduct commerce, but not so much that they feel a great obligation to one another when deals go bad. Second, we need leveraged finance that has a force multiplier effect on the economy, which at a bare minimum means interest or usury. And third, we need sovereign laws which can be objectively and efficiently judged. What this really means at a bare minimum is that the laws are written as if A happens, then consequence B happens. If A, then B. So the laws are what I refer to as being verbalist and invariantist. So they work efficiently by removing context and intentionality. If these three demand conditions of diversity, interest, and sovereign laws combine with the three supply drivers of conscious reflection, democratic debate, and shared values that allow for analytical thinking to run through and eventually will dominate any culture that happens to have these six conditions in place. And when I refer to a subconscious philosophy, this is what the underlying water that runs through our minds comes from. And so the objective of this podcast is to bring about a mindfulness by showing you how these underlying conditions and drivers can spring to life under different circumstances. Now, this is a good time for me to explain the podcast's cover art, as I've designed it to provide a focal point for contemplating Western versus non-Western thinking. At the top, you'll see a picture of some calves or baby cows. And this, as I will explain in a moment, represents the useful fiction that characterizes top-down thinking. And at the bottom of the um, cover art is a picture of the falling water uh, house as architected by Frank Lloyd Wright. And to me, what this house represents, and I'll explain a little bit more about Frank Lloyd Wright in a moment, is the embrace of bottom-up thinking in conscious and mindful opposition of Western thinking. I'll explain Frank Lloyd Wright first, and then I'll explain the calves. Frank Lloyd Wright, as you may know, is generally regarded as the greatest American architect. He was famously arrogant and believed that he should be regarded as the world's greatest architect. Now, while most of his arrogance came from his personality, it can also be understood through the fact that his philosophy around architect was very much architecture, I should say, was very much inspired by Eastern and non-Western thinking. In particular, he drew inspiration from nature itself and from Japanese culture. His overarching philosophy was what he referred to as organic architecture. And he believed that all human-made structures should be conceived as something that emerges from its surroundings, as opposed to traditional architecture where the building has been plunked down from the architect's imagination. But this made Frank Lloyd Wright difficult to understand and emulate since there was no formula or grand theory you could ever follow. 
Nevertheless, results speak for themselves, and falling water is easily the apotheosis, the perfect example of this mindset. And so this is why I've placed falling water at the bottom of the cover art. Now, as for the calves, I have placed them at the top of the cover art because they represent top-down thinking. You see, the catalyzing enzyme for deductive thinking comes from interest or usury. And here's how that came about. Starting nearly 8,000 years ago, around 5900 BCE, diverse populations living in Mesopotamia, when they were not fighting with one another, could cooperate through interest-based contracts that at the very least had and still has the veneer, and if done correctly, the substance of a win-win outcome where both parties benefit and prosper from lending with interest. And so we can say it with some certainty, as I will demonstrate in this podcast, that the core of Western thinking lies in diversity. Diversity is another word for a heterogeneous population, or you can also think of this as a multicultural society. But there's a catch to this. And the catch is this. There must be a fine balance of trust and empathy. And when I say balance, what I mean is this. On the left-hand side of the scale, if there's too much trust and empathy, too much love, then lending with interest becomes unnecessary, even rude, which means contracts become unnecessary, which means sovereign laws become unnecessary, which means analytical deductive thinking becomes unnecessary. On the right-hand side of the scale, if there was too little empathy and, and too little trust, too much hate, if you will, between the diverse groups of people, then violence breaks out, which inhibits trade, which makes it impossible to loan capital, which then also makes it unnecessary to form contracts, which means it's not necessary to have sovereign laws and analytical thinking and so forth. Now here's where the calves come in. They're both the inspiration for the idea of interest or usury, as well as the sales pitch used to, ch to justify the charging of interest. But that's basically where it begins and ends. It's all just a useful fiction. Namely, by explaining that if I loan a herd of cattle or a flock of sheep, I expect not just the original oxen and sheep, but also their offspring, their calves, and their lambs. So it seems reasonable on one hand, especially if interest is being charged, can be covered by the offspring. But in reality, interest was just being set at 20% because that happened to be the easiest amount to calculate. And so there was never an honest tracking or calibration to livestock offspring. It was always just this sort of fiction used to justify um, the charging of interest. But this useful fiction is not only a game changer, I would argue that it's actually a game maker. And to make this point, let me show you the difference between money, debt, and interest so you can see the force multiplier effect that interest can have on uh, money and debt. Let's say we have a simple economy that is made up of a farmer, a miller, and a baker. The farmer grows wheat and sells it to the miller. The miller grinds the wheat into flour and sells it to the baker. The baker then uses the flour to bake bread and sells it back to the farmer and miller, among many others. In this situation, you can have a money economy, but until there is interest, there is no way for you to leverage your capital. So for example, if you anticipate a population surge is coming, you just have to wait for those new immigrants to show up and buy your bread before you can take that money and invest it in a new oven. Same goes for the miller who might want to build a new mill and for the farmer who wants to, to buy up more land. At the same time, it is possible to tax the farmer, the miller, and the baker and force them all into debt. So you don't need interest to make 
uh, money economy work, and there doesn't need to be interest for people to fall into debt. However, if you add interest into the mix, it's like adding rocket fuel. So now instead of waiting for the immigrants to show up and spend their money before investing, you can get a loan and buy the new oven or mill or plot of land based solely on your reputation and your anticipation of business growth. And so eventually, the business that is bringing in the most money can then decide that it's more profitable to seek out bakery investment opportunities. And that baker can then go out and meet the demand of all those hungry bread lovers. And that's the good news story. The bad news story is that the same baker could overleverage uh, herself or himself by investing in a whole bunch of bakeries and then perhaps get hit by some kind of catastrophe that doesn't just wipe out a few bakeries, but leads to a larger bankruptcy that wipes out all of the bankruptcies, thus leaving people to go hungry and also hurting the miller and farmer who has no one to sell their goods to. And so, as you shall see in the final part episode in part one of this podcast, that this is something that was quite common in ancient Mesopotamia going back 4,500 years. Here's another way of looking at interest. If you've ever played one of those simulation games like SimCity or Farmville, those games tend to put tight controls over the exchange of money. So those games won't allow you to make loans to other players. But if you were to, um, if they were to allow you to make loans to other players, it would completely change the dynamic of the game and reduce it to a much simpler game whereby you would simply be making loans or increasing production depending on the going interest rate and your rate of production, your rate of return on production, I mean. So it would be an entirely different and probably more boring game if you do that, which is why people don't. There's also, the real, there's also actually a real-life example of something like this happening. Going back to the mid-2000s, the massively multiplayer game EVE Online allowed players to exchange money with each other. By 2009, one player decided to create a simple savings and loans bank, allowing users to earn a return on their savings. Unfortunately, it turned out to be a giant Ponzi scheme, and the player acting as a banker simply converted the online currency into hard cash and then abandoned the game. This, in effect, led to an economic crash within the EVE Online community, and this, to say the least, was devastating to the EVE Online community. So that is the power of interest in a nutshell. And the way in which interest leads to sovereign laws is that interest requires binary contracts in order for the agreements to be enforced over time. These contracts eventually give way to law codes, and these early law codes all have the form of if A happens, then consequence B will, meted, will be meted out. And these early law codes were designed for efficiency. A noteworthy aspect of these law codes, and what unfortunately remains to this day, is that they devalue intentionality. In other words, it is the letter, the letter of the law above all else. Now, the other thing about interest you have to understand is that it originated in Mesopotamia alone, and it was only transmitted as opposed to being reinvented throughout the world. But unlike other inventions that came out of Mesopotamia, like the wheel and the sail, or even the plow, interest can cause big problems, and so it doesn't really diffuse through the world like other inventions. Case in point, the oldest documented criticism of interest is from Indian Vedic sages, uh, which was first put down in the first millennium BCE and may have been orally transmitted through Vedic Sanskrit from a time prior to then. The Indian Buddhists re-upped this opinion, and so India never had, at least not until recently, 
a credit-based economy in the same way that Mesopotamia and later the Mediterranean enjoyed. And because up until the first century CE, there was no contact between China and the rest of Asia, except through India, there would be no way for China to have received the concept of interest because India was, you might say, shielding or censoring or just not discussing the idea in any way, shape, or form with the Chinese. But reason would stand that even if it was introduced prior to um, or in the first millennium BCE, I suspect it might be rejected in China as well, because China, even more so than India, sees itself as a homogenous population whose communitarian values would implicitly trust and empathize with their fellow citizens. So too much love, as it were. And so this is why neither India nor China developed the same appetite for analytical thinking as Western countries that embraced interest and usury. Nevertheless, both countries did work out the underlying mechanics of syllogisms and formal logic. However, in China, there was no appetite at all for this mode of thinking, and in India, there was some appetite among the educated class. However, within Buddhist thinking, logic was, and still is, viewed with a certain kind of skepticism. Okay, at this point, I spent enough time whetting your appetite, so let me introduce the meat of this podcast overall and the next few episodes. In terms of the overall purpose of this podcast, my long-term goal is to have guests on discuss topics that pertain to Western thinking, like, for example, top-down metric-driven performance and risk management, or another topic might be the California ideology and techno-utopianism. But before we get there, I have planned out the following episodes, which this is part of. So this set of episodes, which I'm referring to as the Origins of Analytics episodes, will be broken into two major parts. The first part, which you're listening to um, the introduction of, will comprise 10 episodes, which I'll summarize in a moment. The second part of, of the Origins of Analytics, which I've planned out but have not yet begun recording, will hopefully come out later in 2019. I also plan on releasing a very special episode between part one and part two, where I discuss practical solutions for implementing bottom-up thinking in the, belt, in the realm of business analytics and information management. Okay, I'm almost done here, but before I sign off this episode, I will briefly summarize the remaining nine episodes for part one. In the next episode on human psychology, I'm going to share with you two relevant psychology experiments. The first psychology experiment, which took place back in the late 1970s, is how I came to see this analytical water, so to speak, and how I came to realize that analytical deductive thinking is indeed a subconscious philosophy that very few people can really see or understand. The second psychology experiment shows how those with a Western upbringing differ from those with a non-Western upbringing and how they value logic versus intuition, which is to say how they value top-down analytical thinking versus bottom-up thinking. In the third episode, I will explain how Western logic itself was originally formulated by Aristotle and what motivated him. In the fourth episode, I will explain how early Chinese philosophers, known as Mohists, developed logic during wartime for the purpose of developing a system of ethics that would bring people together and live harmoniously with the goal of universal love. In the fifth episode, I will explain how early Indian thinkers developed a different form of logic based on more on substance rather than words, and how this eventually led Indian Buddhists to realize that language was ultimately nothing more than a useful fiction, and that reasoning through logic was also useful in some situations 
but misleading in others. Rather, the Indian saw logic not as the tool, but rather a tool. In in the sixth episode, uh, I will explain why analytical deductive thinking has been so useful to the West and how it has driven massive efficiencies in mathematics, science, and computer technology. In the seventh episode, I will explain how Western philosophy has had a long tradition of being anchored in analytical deductive thinking and how, for the most part, Western philosophy history, this thinking, which the Roman Catholic Church referred to as the Psalm of Truth, underpinned massive schisms between theologians and philosophers and among philosophers themselves, and how it all ended in the middle of the 20th century with the posthumous publication of Ludwig Wittgenstein's book, Philosophical Investigations, which came out in 1953. In the 8th and ninth episodes, I will provide three examples to show you how to apply some of the lessons from history, and in particular in the 8th episode, I show how deductive logic can easily be used against us to essentially swindle us out of good ideas and how easily this can be done in the face of complexity. And in the ninth episode, I provide examples of how bottom-up thinking can succeed in the business world and how to avoid being boxed in by the tool of logic. Finally, in the tenth episode, I trace human history from five million years ago up to the formation of Mesopotamia and how the concept of interest was conceived and how it was transmitted to the Greeks and the Hebrews. I end that episode by providing a preview of part two, which I'll do again here. Now, as you might gather from listening to this podcast, the original purpose of analytics, at least to the Greeks and their philosopher, as their philosopher descendants saw it, was as a technique used to drive out capital T truth. However, as you shall see in the seventh episode, for better or for worse, the idea that an objective truth could be arrived at through deductive logic was proven to be impossible and an illusion, or maybe a useful fiction as some would call it, by the early 20th century. So in hindsight, the Western project for truth can best be understood as a pursuit not so much for a cosmic truth, but rather a pursuit for consistency in the name of control and predictive power, whether it's in the realm of mathematics, science, or commerce. And given that's the case, the the question we should ultimately be asking ourselves is not where truth comes from, but rather where our values come from. So on that note, In part two, which won't come out until later in 2019, I will explain the underlying factors that drive our personal and collective values. And in part two, I will also explain how analytical deductive thinking was able to hibernate in Western Europe for nearly a thousand years, due in large part to the partial preservation of Roman law, as well as the strong influence of the Abrahamic religions, which are grounded in the Hebrew Bible. Now, before signing off, one last thing I'll mention is that you can listen to any of these podcast episodes in any order you want. They're designed to be mostly modular. But if you really want to see the analytical thinking water and achieve a state of analytical mindfulness, I suggest you listen to the episodes in their natural order. Okay, that's all. That's it for now. I hope you enjoy the rest of this podcast. Thanks for listening. And until next time, have yourself a meaningful, thoughtful, and serene day. Farewell for now.